The first chapter is entitled, The Knowledge of God. And we're essentially beginning with, rather than a particular attribute of God, just the idea of the knowledge of God and an encouragement to pursue this knowledge. Whenever we went through our confession of faith, and uh, chapter 2 lists all of those various attributes of God, the very first message that I gave was from 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says that we, we have received these very great promises, all things necessary for life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him, that is God. In other words, it's sort of a motivation to grow in our knowledge of God, being everything that we need for life and godliness, everything we need to live as Christians in this world, we will get if we will give ourselves to study our God. That, that's kind of what this chapter is doing. It's, it's pushing us from the outset to study and come to know more intimately the God of the Bible. The first important statement that I think is made here is, is this. Christianity is first and foremost about the person and work of God. Uh, that's contrary to everything that is not Christian because we begin and start everything with ourselves naturally. We are self-obsessed. Even much that calls itself Christianity in our day does not begin with God. It begins with man. It begins with, with the, the various... Uh, gifts or blessings or even uh, carnal trinkets that we might get from God. Basically, it, it uses God as a genie in a bottle to get what we want. And, and that's the way that God is presented. If you come to God, if you'll make whatever effort is required to get to God, well, you'll then be able to get all of the things that you really want. Biblical Christianity is, is the other way around. We do get every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We, we do get uh, everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. But the ultimate prize, and every Christian knows this, the, the ultimate prize is growing in our own personal, intimate knowledge of God. And so that's where he begins. He says, Therefore we should begin our study with Him. So the first passage that we'll look at is Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. So you can turn there. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Some of you might know Jeremiah was a prophet that prophesied up to the uh, Babylonian captivity and, and basically prepared the people to be taken into captivity and enter into, into the judgment of God. And so the context of what we're reading is the, the looming judgment of God. You could even see in verse 22... Thus says the Lord, the corpses of men will fall like dung on the open field and like the sheaf after the reaper, but no one will gather them. De death is coming. Judgment is coming. And it's in that context that we read these words. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his riches, let not a rich man boast, or let not a uh, mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this: that he understands and knows me, 
that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. The context being the coming judgment, there are things, anytime men have a perception of trial or perception of, of attack, even in our own nation, we, we see things in the world that are happening around us that, that give us the thought that maybe something very dangerous is, is looming, is, is around the corner. Something very terrible might happen. And there are things that men, we, by nature, trust in in those times. And that's what he lists. He lists wisdom, might, and riches. The wisdom here is not biblical wisdom. This would be worldly wisdom. These are three human attainments that men think might be able to protect them, that, that, that might be a safety net, things that we can come up with. These terrible things are happening. Well, it won't matter to me because I'm really smart. These, these terrible things are coming. Here specifically, the judgment of God is coming. Well, well that's okay. I'm, I'm powerful. I have, I have might, strength. The judgment of God is coming. Well, well I, I should be fine. I've got enough money to take care of me, to protect me. The things that men run to, to boast in, in these types of situations. And what Jeremiah is saying is, there's only one safe haven. There's only one place where any of us can ever find actual safety, and that is in God. That is in truly knowing God. Again, back to the context, if judgment is coming, the only way anybody escapes judgment is by knowing God. It's the only thing. And so he's saying, don't, don't boast in, don't glory in, don't, don't puff yourself up with all these things or satisfy yourself. Content yourself with these earthly attainments. Content yourself with this one thing, the knowledge of God. And he, he describes it. That he, he says, let him boast, him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me. That word understand is a reference to a, not just intellectual knowledge, I know some facts, but this is a real working insight of something. Like some of you men, you really know whatever, whatever your job is. You know the ins and outs. If there's a problem, you know how to diagnose it, you know how to fix it. You, you've got a mental grasp of how it works. You understand it. That's the, the word here. Let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands me. And then the word knows here is the word yada which is a reference to an intimate, personal acquaintance between two people. As in, Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore a son. That's, that's the, the word that's used here. Jeremiah is saying, there's only one boast, there's only one safety net, there's only one safe haven for anyone, and that is a real, working insight, an intimate, personal acquaintance with God. That's what, what God is saying through the prophet. All that matters, the ultimate, in, in the language of the workbook, the most essential knowledge, the most important thing above everything else is an understanding and a knowledge of God. But then he goes on, and this kind of helps us because we, we, we like to, well, we, we like to stop short. We like to come short of things. He goes on. He doesn't just say understands and knows me. He goes on, that 
I am the Lord, Yahweh, who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. In other words, he's not just, he doesn't just know facts about God. He knows that God exercises certain things. God acts in certain ways. And that God delights in certain things. Now, if it, I think it's safe to say if someone knows God delights in these things over here, well, God does not delight in the opposite of those things. If God exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness, well, He doesn't exercise the opposite of those traits. In other words, this knowledge of God, this understanding, and this knowing of God goes beyond just surface level facts and moves into what we might call the inner working of God Himself. How God as a being operates, to, to use human terms, how God thinks, the things that He does. In this situation, He does this. In that situation, He done that. And becoming acquainted with how God operates and how God does things, what, what God delights in, and, and that would be... Uh, again, in human language, the, the affections of God, what pleases Him, what, what angers Him, etc. It, it goes beyond just a list of the attributes. Anybody could memorize the table of contents of this book. That doesn't mean they know God. It, it has to go further into a, a, a working, intimate, personal acquaintance and insight into God Himself. Think of it this way. How is it that we know anyone? If I were to say, do you know so-and-so, and you said, yeah, I know him. Yeah, I know her. What, is that? what do you mean when you say that? Now, you might say, well, I've seen them. I know what they look like. I've spoken to them. Well, there has to be more than that because that would be true of the, the clerk at a store. Well, you wouldn't say, yeah, I know that person. You just you know of them. You're aware of them. What does it mean that you know someone? And I tried to think through this, and, and this is the way I would describe it, to actually know someone, means that through revelation over time, we're given insight into the workings of an individual's whole person as they permit. In other words, uh, truth be told, there are, there are probably a lot of people we don't know who know a lot of things about us. There, there are probably people who know very intimate details about us, but they don't know us because they, we didn't permit that information when it comes to knowing somebody, you have come together and there has been sort of a, a reciprocal uh, giving of information, a, a, an admittance of you into their personal life so that you come to know them. Should I stop? Okay. You come to know them. You come to... They let you know things about them. That comes through time spent with people. Just think about this. You spend 10 minutes with somebody. They talk about their day. They have permitted you to know some information about them. They've given you that. You store that in a memory bank. The next day you see them again. Same thing happens. The next day you see them again. Same thing happens. Over time, there is, there is an ever-expanding knowledge of the, the whole working of how this person is. Not only do they tell you about their day, but it's really interesting how they describe the details of their day, what, what they say about certain things. Um, that's how we come to know somebody. 
The more knowledge that we have of a person leads to a nearer bond between the two of you. The longer, the more time you spend with somebody, the more they admit you to the knowledge of them and the more you admit them to a knowledge of yourself, the longer that happens, we develop a bond. That's, that's how we make close friends. When those types of people die, you're sad. There might be other people that you know, but you haven't really spent a whole lot of time with them, so... If they were to die, you'd say, man, that's, man, he, he was a great guy. But it doesn't really hit you because the bond wasn't as close. You see, that's what we mean by knowing someone. And that's what Jeremiah, or God through the prophet Jeremiah is describing here. This knowledge of God is a, a personal, intimate acquaintance with the inner workings of God. God does these things. God delights in these things by inference. He does not delight in these things. He don't do these things. You're, you're becoming acquainted with the inner working of the being that we know as God. And that is the most essential knowledge that a person can possess. The note here says, The attributes of God refer to His fundamental permanent and unchanging characteristics, who He really is. It should be obvious that knowledge of God is the most important knowledge that we can possess. As Christians, we should devote our lives to knowing God and making Him known. The next text that we can turn to is Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And here we, we go a little further into that concept that the, that the knowledge that we're talking about is more than just facts. Learning how God functions within Himself. Maybe that's a, an acceptable phrase to use. Ephesians 5.17 says, So then do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. And he points out here, and I think we, should, we, we, we know this from the Proverbs, that folly, foolishness, is not just ignorance. Uh, it's not, not knowing how to read or not knowing how to do advanced math or long division. When, when the Bible talks about folly and the Proverbs talk about folly and foolishness, it's talking about a, a moral issue. A, a rejection of the revelation of God. And so the text says, do not be that way, don't be foolish, but the flip side, understand what the will of the Lord is. The opposite of folly is coming to an understanding of what the will of the Lord is. And he notes the will of God refers to His purposes, plans, and desires. There is an importance to be found in knowing God and living according to His will. Then the next passage is John chapter 17, verse 3. Of course, we know this is the high priestly prayer of Christ. Anytime you see the Lord Jesus praying for something, you know that it's very important and very significant. And he says in verse 3, This is eternal life, speaking to his Father, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, 
whom you have sent. Eternal life, we understand, is, is presented as a, maybe a, a great blessing of salvation. Whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. What we learn as we study the New Testament and the Gospels especially is that eternal life is not something that's merely waiting out there for us. Eternal life is something that's already begun in us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And, and what Christ says here is, is that the substance of that eternal life is knowing God and, and ultimately spending eternity growing in that intimate knowledge of God. So if life, according to Christ, is knowing God and, and Jesus Christ that God sent, well, I think it's safe to work the other way and say, well, then death, what, what is death, spiritual death? It's, it's separation from God. It's, it's ignorance of God, not knowing the God who made you. That is the great problem with fallen man. That's, that's man's problem. He doesn't know his God. He doesn't even know the one who made him. And as we'll see, in not knowing that, he, he, can't, he can't go right from, from there. He's, he's, he's on, a, on a dead end road to begin with. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, what was happening, uh, the implication of what was happening prior to the fall is that God would come and walk in the garden and spend personal fellowship time with Adam and Eve. There was, there was a revelation of Him. They were coming to know Him and He was making Himself known. They were living because they knew their God, but then sin entered the picture and, and what happens? They're put out. They're put away from God. They're separated from God. That's, that's the idea here. Why, why should we study the knowledge of God? This is eternal life. Growing in our personal, intimate acquaintance with God. This is what we will be doing forever. And it, it, and it won't be, and this is where we have to be careful because in, in our fallen condition and through scriptural revelation, very often our study of the knowledge of God and our growth in the knowledge of God does take the form of a, a scholastic endeavor. I've got to get out a book. I've got to get out a piece of paper. I've got to get out a pencil. I've got to read. I've got to think. I've got to write. I've got to consider. I've got to consult helpers and counselors from times past. I've got to bring all that in. And it, it can look like you're just doing homework. And... and we don't want to put all of that away and say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to put all those things away, close my Bible and just sit and say, God, just tell me who you are. We don't want to go to that extreme, but we have to couple that scholastic endeavor of, of studying and writing and thinking, couple that with true meditation and thinking, and, and, and I'll say this later again, but, but bringing those things back to God in a, in a conversational, prayerful relationship with Him. That's eternal life. Now, in glory, it won't be that way. We're not, we're not all going to get out our Bible and sit and read in glory to know God. We will be there with Him. But it will be the same uh, overflow and uh, uh, product of our existence. It will just be knowing Him. That is, that is eternal life, is knowing Him. He says no, eternal life does not just refer to a quantity of life, life without end, but to a quality of life. The great purpose of life is to know God in an intimate relationship. And again, that will require study. 
that will require effort. This is, this is one of those things like assurance of our salvation. This is not a jewel that falls into the lap of, a, of any lazy Christian. It takes effort. It takes work. It takes time. Maybe time most of all time. So then, the second heading that we have is the benefits of knowing God. What are some of the benefits? He lists four, understanding, trust or faith, spiritual strength, and perseverance. So we'll begin with understanding, and he takes us now to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Did I say that right? Yeah, Proverbs 9, 10. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Again, that word understanding refers to a good, useful, working knowledge of reality. So what's he saying? He's saying, according to the note, a correct view of God is necessary in order to have a correct view of everything else. That's where we have to begin. Nothing makes sense apart from beginning with the knowledge of God. Getting up in the morning and going to work doesn't make sense apart from knowing God. Marriage doesn't make sense apart from knowing God. Having and and raising children. We, We see this in our world. The things that they eschew and despise and hate that we say, no, these things are good. Marriage is a blessing. Children are a blessing. Work is good. They hate these things. We're saying, no, these things are great. Why? It's because we know our God. They can't see what we see. It's like they've got blinders on. They're not able to make sense of any good sense of reality because they don't know God. The flip side of that is we know our God. Even even those of us who have maybe the most basic understanding, just a little bit of the light of the knowledge of God floods every endeavor of life and and shows us why we're doing it. And it makes it not only uh, purposeful but but useful and, and, and a blessing to us. So it gives us understanding of everything when we know God. The second benefit of knowing God is trust or faith. And here we go to Psalm 9 and verse 10. Psalm 9 verse 10. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Now, I want to point out first, the reason that I read verse 9 is we, we see the context here is oppression and trouble. In that context of oppression and trouble, 
there is a reference to those who in times of oppression and trouble, they know God. And because they know God, they trust in their God. And then the end of the verse says, For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. There's a progression here. There There are these people who seek God... Why do they seek Him? Because they, they know Him and they know Him because they seek Him. And because they know Him, they trust Him. This is why we say one of the benefits of knowing God is trusting Him, is faith. One of the questions that I was asked while I was away, a young lady asked me, how do I grow in my faith? Uh, and I was tempted to respond like Christ responded, um, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, uh, you can say this mountain be cast into the sea and it, and it will be done. Uh, the idea being it's, it's not really the magnitude of your faith as much as it is the, as the object of your faith. But she wanted to know, how can I grow in my faith? And maybe you thought about that. I, if you're thinking about, if you're trying to think, do I have weak or strong faith? What, what are your immediate inclinations in certain situations like oppression and trouble? Uh, what, is the, what is the first reaction of your mind? Is it, is it worry and anxiety or is it very quickly, everything's going to be fine. God's in control. Well, wherever you are on that spectrum, you might be able to decide, well, I feel like I have weak faith or, or strong faith. And the question is, how can I grow in faith? Well, the answer is, study God. Study, study who God is. That's what I told her. I said, you need to get out your Bible and you need to read your Bible. Beginning Genesis, read through your Bible and just pay attention to what it's teaching you about God. Just, just observe what is, who is this God presented in this book and what do I see Him doing? And if you do that over and over and over throughout your lifetime, you're going to grow in your faith because the, the, the faith itself is increased as the object becomes more and more clear to our, our, our apprehension. So knowing God leads to trust and faith. You, you can't truly come to that personal intimate acquaintance with this God that's revealed in this book in the way that He's revealed in this book, in the mighty acts that He's done throughout history. You can't come to that knowledge and then never, never increase in faith. Just continue all your life in anxiety and worry and, and fear. That doesn't happen. The way that we are meant to grow is to know Him. That's why He's revealed Himself to us. And that's what's happening here. There's, there's a seeking that leads to knowledge, that leads to trust or faith. As I read this, I thought about uh, Romans chapter 10. This is, this, maybe this is where what Paul was thinking when he said, I think this maybe comes up later in the study too. In, in Romans 10, Paul says, How will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? In other words, how are you, you going to cry out to Him if you don't trust Him? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Uh, the, some, some translations say, how will they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? Either way, uh, the revelation of God coming from God leads to this, this truth. When you hear about this God, when you learn who He is, you will trust in Him. And when you trust in Him, you will call upon Him. That's how it works. That, that's, the, the, that's why the job of a preacher is to declare God, to declare what God has done through His Son. And when people hear that, and the Spirit blesses that proclamation, they call out to Him. That's what's being said here. Now, the flip side of that, you can see in, in Psalm 10.4, it says, The wicked 
in, his, in the haughtiness of his countenance, Psalm 10.4, does not seek him. See, here's the opposite. This is the wicked man, not the godly. He's haughty. He's, he's, he's prideful. He's, he's trusting in himself. He's not seeking outside of himself. He does not seek God. He does not seek Him. His, all his thoughts are, there is no God. Um, and, and this is not the, the, the skeptical atheist saying, well, I just don't see any proof that there is a God. But this is a haughty person saying, there is no God. No God. I'm God. I trust in myself. The, the, the two diametrically opposed worldview. The, the believer, the Christian is the one who has come to know God and in knowing God seeks a greater knowledge of God and in growing in a knowledge grows in their faith. So if you're the type of person who says, I struggle, my faith is weak. When I see the things happening in the world, my first reaction on a consistent basis is anxiety and stress and worry. You need to study and know God. Grow in your knowledge and understanding of God. The third benefit of knowing God is spiritual strength. This is very closely related. Spiritual strength. The, the text that's referenced is Daniel 11.32. Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. Is that right? Yeah. By smooth words He will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Notice again, this, this knowledge of God leads to some alteration in them, a, a change. They, they display strength. They take action. The knowledge of God moves men to do what they ought to do. It might be helpful... I've got notes scribbled all over this page. It might be helpful for us to think about what this, this means. Uh, they will display strength. Uh, another reference he, he points out is 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, which says, David was greatly distressed, but he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Uh, the, 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 the strength that's being talked about here, they will display strength and take action. This is not physical might or strength. Um, if that were the case, then we'd go back to Jeremiah 9 and say, well, maybe they do trust in their might. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about strength in the inner man. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 Paul's praying for the Ephesians and he prays that he, God, would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Now I think that's when it says David strengthened himself in the Lord, that's what Paul's talking about here, being strengthened in the inner man, strengthened in the faculties of the, the inner life, the, the, the mind, the affections, the heart, growing and being strengthened in those faculties. Well, how does that happen? Well, it comes as we grow in our knowledge of God. As we know God, our thinking, going back to understanding, our thinking about the world around us is altered. 
our affections, our will is altered as we set the things around us in, uh, in proper perspective to the God that we are coming to know. And so our, our affections change. Our, rather than being immediately pulled towards fear and trembling, we're, we, we go in the other direction. You see, our, our inner man functions differently, again, because we have come to know God. And, and that begins, of course, with intellectually taking in what God has revealed about Himself. Another reference that I have written down here is Philippians 4, verses 12 and 13. Uh, let me read verses 11 to 13 because this is... 13 is a popular verse, but 11 and 12 kind of help us out to see what Paul's talking about. He says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now, just think about what it means to learn to be content. That's, that's not outward, uh, physical... Uh, it's not like he's saying, I learned how to crochet or I learned how to throw a fastball in, base, in, in baseball. He's not talking about an outward physical skill. He's talking about inside himself, in his soul, he's learned how to um, rest, to be content in, in whatever circumstances. Verse 12, I know how to get along, is translated here, I know how to get along with humble means. Paul's not saying, I know how to take a bag of rice and divide it out into various portions so that it lasts me two weeks instead of eating it all at one time. No, he's saying, in my soul, I know how to be content and to, and to continue through humble means, humble circumstances. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And in the well-known verse, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, what, what is the strengthening here? It's that strengthening of the inner man. Paul has been strengthened by God to to these attainments of the inner man. Contentment. Learning how to get along. Learning, learning how to think properly and conduct himself and his heart, his inner man, in the world regardless of the circumstances. That's what we talk about when we're saying being strengthened in God. Strengthened in the inner man. The faculties of the soul are functioning properly in whatever circumstance to do what God has called us to do. It's not physical strength. Spiritual strength. That's what it's talking about here. And then the fourth one is perseverance. 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. Perseverance. Paul is able to endure whatever his suffering is, knowing that God will take care of whatever the outcome might be. And again, notice what he says. I know whom I have believed. It's God. You might have, I know in whom I have believed. It, it makes no difference. He's saying, I know God. And I am convinced. Convinced by what? Convinced by His knowledge of God. I'm convinced, because I know Him, that He is able 
to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. When he says that he is able, he's saying I'm convinced of, of some information about the person of God that leads me to this conviction. He is able. He is powerful. He is omnipotent. He has the strength to guard whatever I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, let's think about this practically. Let's, let's just surmise here. What might Paul have potentially studied from the Old Testament Scriptures that led him to believe God is able to keep whatever I entrust to Him. We could, we could point to a, a number of stories. Let's just go to the whole history of the nation of Israel. I mean, God took this tiny nation and preserved them even through their disobedience and attacks, preserved them all the way through captivity, brought them back out of captivity using pagan kings and and all of these other circumstances, God did all of that to preserve them to the point that the Messiah would be born. What do we learn? Well, I'm convinced God is able to keep anything that's entrusted to Him. Anything that God sets Himself to care for, He will guard it. Right? So then, He's able to guard anything I can entrust to Him. I don't have to worry about my life. I can suffer anything knowing I know Him. He's able to guard. He's able to keep whatever I entrust to Him. You see how that works. Take these big pictures and you say, if God can do that, then here's little old me. I'm going to be fine. Knowing God, knowing information about this God from the revelation of God led to Paul's conviction that he would be able to guard what Paul had entrusted to him. The note here says, The Apostle Paul wrote this right before he was to die as a martyr for Christ under the corrupt rule of the Roman Empire. He remained faithful to Christ and did not deny the faith. He stood bold, unashamed, and confident because he knew the character and power of the one in whom he had come to believe. Now, what is the alternate truth? Knowing God leads me to be convinced that He is able to guard whatever I trust in Him. If I struggle with entrusting myself to Him, if I struggle with fear or anxiety, what's the root cause? It's either ignorance of God or blatant unbelief of what has been revealed. And this is one of the benefits of a study of knowing God is perseverance. So let's let's end there. We'll pick up with the dangers of not knowing God next week. I do want to reiterate something. I thought I had prepared something. Um, I do want to reiterate. I don't want any of us to be confused that by studying the attributes of God, we know God. Um, Take the things that we study here and in your own study, read the Bible to know God, but you have to take those things and then return them back to Him in prayer, in worship, and in praise. Um, I don't know any better language than to take the things that God reveals about Himself and turn them into conversation about God with God. Uh, If you say you know somebody, you're you're saying, I've spent some time with them. I've spoken to them. If you ask them, they'd they'd say they know me too. If you say, yeah, I know Him, but then you talk to somebody and they say, I don't know who you're talking about. You wonder, do do you really know Him? It's, It's reciprocal. Take the things that you learn about God, the things that you see about God, return them back up to Him, worship Him, praise Him, talk to Him about them. Pour out your own soul to Him. 
That's how the, the relationship and communion with God is developed. Um, that being said, let's, let's close and we'll, we'll stand and sing a song.